be sure to follow Send Me to Sleep on your preferred podcast player so you never miss an episode and a good night's rest. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Good evening. Tonight, I'll be reading Part 2, The Tiger of San Pedro, of Mr. John Scott Eccles, of Sherlock Holmes, The Adventure of Wisteria Lodge by Sir Arthur Conan Doyle. So let your eyes fall heavy and your breath soften as we settle in for a peaceful night's sleep. Part 2 The Tiger of San Pedro A cold and melancholy walk of a couple of miles brought us to a high wooden gate, which opened in a gloomy avenue of chestnuts. The curved and shadowed drive led us to a low, dark house, pitch black against a slate-coloured sky. From the front window upon the left of the door, there peeped a glimmer of a feeble light. There's a constable in possession, said Baines. I'll knock at the window. He stepped across the grass plot and tapped with his hand on the pane. Through the fogged glass, I dimly saw a man spring up from a chair beside the fire, and heard a sharp cry from within the room. An instant later, a white-faced, hard-breathing policeman had opened the door, the candle wavering in his trembling hand. What's the matter, Walters? asked Baines sharply. The man mopped his forehead with his handkerchief and gave a long sigh of relief. I am glad you have come, sir. It has been a long evening, and I don't think my nerves are as good as they were. Your nerves, Walters? I should not think you had a nerve in your body. Well, sir, it's this lonely, silent house, and the queer thing in the kitchen. Then when you tapped at the window, I thought it had come again. But what had come again? The devil, sir, for all I know. It was at the window. What was at the window, and when? It was just about two hours ago. The light was just fading. I was sitting, reading in the chair. I don't know what made me look up, but there was a face looking in at me through the lower pane. 
Lord, sir, what a face it was. I'll see it in my dreams. Tut, tut, Walters, this is not talk for a police constable. I know, sir, I know, but it shook me, sir, and there's no use to deny it. It wasn't black, sir, nor white, nor any colour that I know, but a kind of queer shade, like clay with a splash of milk in it. Then there was the size of it. It was twice yours, sir, and the look of it, the great staring goggle eyes, and the line of white teeth like a hungry beast. I tell you, sir, I couldn't move a finger, nor get my breath, till it whisked away and was gone. Out I ran and through the shrubbery, but thank God there was no one there. If I didn't know you were a good man, Walters, I should put a black mark against you for this. If it were the devil himself, a constable on duty should never thank God that he could not lay his hands upon him. I suppose the whole thing is not a vision and a touch of nerves. That, at least, is very easily settled, said Holmes, lighting his little pocket lantern. Yes, he reported after a short examination of the grass bed. A number twelve shoe, I should say. If he was all the same scale as his foot, he must certainly have been a giant. What became of him? He seems to have broken through the shrubbery and made for the road. Well, said the inspector with a grave and thoughtful face, whoever he may have been, and whatever he may have wanted, he's gone for the present, and we have more immediate things to attend to. Now, Mr. Holmes, with your permission, I will show you round the house. The various bedrooms and sitting rooms had yielded nothing to a careful search. Apparently the tenants had brought little or nothing with them, and all the furniture, down to the smallest detail, had been taken over with the house. A good deal of clothing, with the stamp of Marks and Co., High Holborn, had been left behind. Telegraphic inquiries had been already made, which showed that Marks knew nothing of his customer, save that he was a good payer. Odds and ends, some pipes, a few novels, two of them in Spanish, an old-fashioned pine revolver, and a guitar were among the personal property. Nothing in all this, said Baines, stalking, candle in hand, from room to room. But now, Mr. Holmes, I invite your attention to the kitchen. It was a gloomy, high-ceilinged room at the back of the house, with a straw litter in one corner, which served apparently as a bed for the cook, 
The table was piled with half-eaten dishes and dirty plates, the debris of last night's dinner. Look at this, said Baines. What do you make of it? He held up his candle before an extraordinary object which stood at the back of the dresser. It was so wrinkled and shrunken and withered that it was difficult to say what it might have been. One could but say that it was black and leathery and that it bore some resemblance to a dwarfish human figure. At first, as I examined it, I thought that it was a mummified baby, and then it seemed a very twisted and ancient monkey. Finally, I was left in doubt as to whether it was human or animal. A double band of white shells were strung around the centre of it. Very interesting, very interesting indeed, said Holmes, peering at the sinister relic. Anything more? In silence, Baines led the way to the sink and held forward his candle. The limbs and body of some large, white bird, torn savagely to pieces with the feathers still on, were littered all over it. Holmes pointed to the wattles on the severed head. A white cock, said he. Most interesting. It is really a very curious case. But Mr. Baines had kept his most sinister exhibit to the last. From under the sink he drew a zinc pail which contained a quantity of blood. Then from the table he took a platter heaped with small pieces of charred bone. Something has been killed, and something has been burned. We raked all these out of the fire. He had a doctor in this morning. He says that they are not human. Holmes smiled and rubbed his hands. I must congratulate you, Inspector, on handling so distinctive and instructive a case. Your powers if I may say so without offence, seem superior to your opportunities. Inspector Bain's small eyes twinkled with pleasure. You're right, Mr. Holmes. We stagnate in the provinces. A case of this sort gives a man a chance, and I hope that I shall take it. What do you make of these bones? A lamb. I should say, or a kid. And the white cock? Curious, Mr. Baines, very curious. I should say almost unique. Yes, sir, there must have been some very strange people with some very strange ways in this house. One of them is dead. Did his companions follow him or kill him? If they did, we should have them, for every port is watched. But my own views are very different. Yes, sir, my own views are different indeed. You have a theory, then? 
and I'll work it myself, Mr. Holmes. It's only due to my own credit to do so. Your name is made, but I have still to make mine. I should be glad to be able to say afterwards that I had solved it without your help. Holmes laughed good-humouredly. Well, well, Inspector, said he. Do you follow your path, and I will follow mine. My results are always very much at your service, if you care to apply to me for them. I think that I have seen all that I wish in this house, and that my time may be more profitably employed elsewhere. Au revoir, and good luck. I could tell by numerous subtle signs, which might have been lost upon anyone else but myself, that Holmes was hot on a scent. As impassive as ever to the causal observer, there was none the less a subdued eagerness and suggestion of tension in his bright eyes and brisker manner which assured me that the game was afoot. After his habit he said nothing, and after mine I asked no questions. Sufficient for me to share the sport and lend my humble help to capture without distracting that intent brain with needless interruption. All would come round to me in due time. I waited, therefore, but to my ever-deepening disappointment I waited in vain. Day succeeded day, and my friend took no step forward. One morning he spent it in town, and I learned from a casual reference that he had visited the British Museum. Save for this one excursion, he spent his days in long and often solitary walks, or in chatting with a number of village gossips whose acquaintance he had cultivated. I'm sure, Watson, a week in the country will be invaluable to you, he remarked. It is very pleasant to see the first green shoots upon the hedges and the catkins on the hazels once again. With a spud, a tin box, and an elementary book of botany, there are instructive days to be spent. He prowled about with this equipment himself, but it was a poor show of plants, which he would bring back of an evening. Occasionally in our rambles we came across Inspector Baines. His fat red face wreathed itself in smiles, and his small eyes glittered as he greeted my companion. He said very little about the case, but from that little we gathered that he also was not dissatisfied at the course of events. I must admit, however, that I was somewhat surprised when, some five days after the crime, I opened my morning paper to find in large letters, The Oxshot Mystery, A Solution 
arrest of supposed assassin. Holmes sprang in his chair as if he had been stung when he read the headline. By Jove, he cried, you don't mean that Baines has got him. Apparently, said I, as I read the following report. Great excitement was caused in Esher and the neighbouring district when it was learned late last night that an arrest had been effected in connection with the Oshot murder. It will be remembered that Mr. Garcia of Wisteria Lodge was found dead on Oshot Common, his body showing signs of extreme violence, and that on the same night his servant and his cook fled, which appeared to show their participation in the crime. It was suggested, but never proven, that the deceased gentleman may have had valuables in the house, and that their abstraction was the motive of the crime. Every effort was made by Inspector Baines, who has the case in hand, to ascertain the hiding place of the fugitives, and he had good reason to believe that they had not gone far, but were lurking in some retreat which had already been prepared. It was certain from the first, however, that they would eventually be detected, as the cook, from the evidence of two or three tradespeople who have caught a glimpse of him through the window, was a man of most remarkable appearance, being a huge and hideous man with yellowish features of a pronounced type. This man has been seen since the crime for he was detected and pursued by Constable Walters on the same evening, when he had the audacity to revisit Wisteria Lodge. Inspector Baines, considering that such a visit must have some purpose in view, and was likely, therefore, to be repeated, abandoned the house, but left an ambuscade in the shrubbery. The man walked into the trap and was captured last night after a struggle in which Constable Downing was badly bitten by the savage. We understand that when the prisoner is brought before the magistrates a remand will be applied for the police and that great developments are hoped from his capture. Really, we must see Baines at once, cried Holmes, picking up his hat. We will just catch him before he starts. We hurried down the village street and found, as we had expected, that the inspector was just leaving his lodges. You've seen the paper, Mr. Holmes, he asked, holding one out to us. Yes, Baines, I've seen it. Pray don't think it a liberty if I give you a word of friendly warning. Of warning, Mr. Holmes. I have looked into this case with some care, and I am not convinced that you are on the right lines. I don't want you to commit yourself too far unless you are sure. You're very kind, Mr. Holmes. I assure you I speak for your good. 
It seemed to me that something like a wink quivered for an instant over one of Baines's tiny eyes. We agreed to work on our own lines, Mr. Holmes. That's what I am doing. Oh, very good, said Holmes. Don't blame me. No, sir, I believe you mean well by me. But we all have our own systems, Mr. Holmes. You have yours, and maybe I have mine. Let us say no more about it. You're welcome always to my news. This fellow is a perfect savage, as strong as a cart horse and as fierce as the devil. He chewed Downing's thumb nearly off before they could master him. He hardly speaks a word of English, and we can get nothing out of him but grunts. And you think you have evidence that he has murdered his late master? I didn't say so, Mr. Holmes. I didn't say so. We all have our little ways. You try yours, and I will try mine. That's the agreement. Holmes shrugged his shoulders as we walked away together. I can't make the man out. He seems to be riding for a fool. Well, as he says, we must each try our own way and see what comes of it. But there's something in Inspector Baines which I can't quite understand. Just sit down in the chair, Watson, said Sherlock Holmes when we had returned to our apartment at the ball. I want to put you in touch with the situation, as I may need your help tonight. Let me show you the evolution of this case so far, as I have been able to follow it. Simple as it has been in its leading features, it has nonetheless presented surprising difficulties in the way of an arrest. There are gaps in that direction which we have still to fill. We will go back to the note which was handed to Garcia upon the evening of his death. We may put aside this idea of Baines that Garcia's servants were concerned in the matter. The proof of this lies in the fact that it was he who had arranged for the presence of Scott Eccles which could only have been done for the purpose of an alibi. It was Garcia, then, who had an enterprise, and apparently a criminal enterprise, in hand that night in the course of which he met his death. I say criminal because only a man with a criminal enterprise desires to establish an alibi. Who, then, is most likely to have taken his life. Surely the person against whom the criminal enterprise was directed. So far it seems to me that we're on safe ground. We can now see a reason for the disappearance of Garcia's household. They were all confederates in the same unknown crime. If it came off when Garcia returned, any possible suspicion would be warded off by the Englishman's evidence, and all would be well. 
but the attempt was a dangerous one, and if Garcia did not return by a certain hour, it was probable that his own life had been sacrificed. It had been arranged, therefore, that in such a case his two subordinates were to make for the prearranged spot where they could escape investigation and be in a position afterwards to renew their attempt. That would fully explain the facts, would it not? The whole inexplicable tangle seemed to straighten out before me. I wondered, as I always did, how it had not been obvious to me before. But why should one servant return? We can imagine that in the confusion of flight, something precious, something which he could not bear to part with, had been left behind. That would explain his presence, would it not? Well, what is the next step? The next step is the note received by Garcia at the dinner. It indicates a confederate at the other end. Now, where was the other end? I have already shown you that it could only lie in some large house, and that the number of large houses is limited. My first days in this village were devoted to a series of walks in which in the intervals of my botanical researches, I made a reconnaissance of all the large houses and an examination of the family history of the occupants. One house, and only one, riveted my attention. It is the famous old Jacobean Grange of High Gable, one mile on the farther side of Oshot and less than half a mile from the scene of the tragedy. The only other mansion belonged to a prosaic and respectable people who live far aloof from romance. But Mr. Henderson of High Gable was by all accounts a curious man to whom curious adventures might befall. I concentrated my attention, therefore, upon him and his household. A singular set of people, Watson, the man himself the most singular of them all. I managed to see him on a plausible pretext, but I seemed to read in his dark, deep-set, brooding eyes that he was perfectly aware of my true business. He is a man of fifty, strong, active, with iron-grey hair, great bunched black eyebrows, the step of a deer and the air of an emperor, a fierce, masterful man, with a red-hot spirit behind his parchment face. He is either a foreigner or has lived long in the tropics, for he is yellow and sapless, but tough as whipcord. His friend and secretary, Mr. Lucas is undoubtedly a foreigner, chocolate-brown, wily, suave, and cat-like, with a poisonous gentleness of speech. You see, Watson, we have come already upon two sets of foreigners, one at Wisteria Lodge, 
and one at High Gable, so our gaps are beginning to close. These two men, close and confidential friends, are the centre of the household, but there is one other person who for our immediate purpose may be even more important. Henderson has two children, girls of eleven and thirteen. Their governess is Miss Burnett, an Englishwoman of forty or thereabouts. There is also one confidential manservant. This little group form the real family, for they travel about together, and Henderson is a great traveller, always on the move. It is only within the last week that he has returned, after a year's absence, to High Gable. I may add that he is enormously rich, and whatever his whims may be, he can very easily satisfy them. For the rest, his house is full of butlers, footmen, maid servants, and the usual overfed, underworked staff of a large English country house. So much I learned partly from village gossip and partly from my own observation. There are no better instruments than discharged servants with a grievance, and I was lucky enough to find one. I call it luck, but it would not have come my way had I not been looking out for it. As Baines remarks, we all have our systems. It was my system which enabled me to find John Warner, late gardener of High Gable, sacked at a moment of temper by his imperious employer. He in turn had friends among the indoor servants, who unite in their fear and dislike of their master. So I had my key to the secret of the establishment. Curious people, Watson. I don't pretend to understand it all yet, but very curious people. It's a double-winged house, and the servants live on one side, the family on the other. There's no link between the two save the Henderson's own servant, who serves the family's meals. Everything is carried to a certain door, which forms the one connection. Governess and children hardly go out at all, except into the garden. Henderson never by any chance walks alone. His dark secretary is like his shadow, The gossip among the servants is that their master is terribly afraid of something. Sold his soul to the devil in exchange for money, says Warner, and expects his creditor to come up and claim his own. Where they came from, or who they are, nobody has an idea. They are very violent. Twice Henderson has lashed at folk with his dog whip and only his long purse and heavy compensation have kept him out of the courts. Well now, Watson, let us judge the situation by this new information. We may take it that the letter came out of this strange household, 
and was an invitation to Garcia to carry out some attempt which had already been planned. Who wrote the note? It was someone within the citadel, and it was a woman. Who then but Miss Burnett, the governess? All our reasoning seems to point that way. At any rate, we may take it as a hypothesis and see what consequences it would entail. I may add that Miss Burnett's age and character make it certain that my first idea that there might be a love interest in our story is out of the question. If she wrote the note, she was presumably the friend and confederate of Garcia. What, then, might she be expected to do if she heard of his death? If he met it in some nefarious enterprise, her lips might be sealed. Still, in her heart, she must retain bitterness and hatred against those who had killed him, and would presumably help so far as she could have revenge upon them. Could we see her, then and try to use her? That was the first thought. But now we come to a sinister fact. Miss Burnett has not been seen by any human eye since the night of the murder. From that evening, she has utterly vanished. Is she alive? Has she perhaps met her end on the same night as the friend whom she had summoned? Or is she merely a prisoner? There is the point which we still have to decide. You will appreciate the difficulty of the situation, Watson. There is nothing upon which we can apply for a warrant. Our whole scheme might seem fantastic if laid before a magistrate. The woman's disappearance counts for nothing, since in that extraordinary household any member of it might be invisible for a week, and yet she may at the present moment be in danger of her life. All I can do is to watch the house and leave my agent, Warner, on guard at the gates. We can't let such a situation continue. If the law can do nothing, we must take the risk ourselves. What do you suggest? I know which is her room. It is accessible from the top of an outhouse. My suggestion is that you and I go tonight and see if we can strike at the very heart of the mystery. It was not, I must confess, a very alluring prospect. The old house with its atmosphere of murder, the singular and formidable inhabitants, the unknown dangers of the approach, and the fact that we were putting ourselves legally in a false position, all combined to damp my ardour. But there was something in the ice-cold reasoning of Holmes which made it impossible to shrink from any adventure which he might recommend. One knew that thus, and only thus, could a solution be found. I clasped his hand in silence, and the die was cast. 
but it was not destined that our investigation should have so adventurous an ending. It was about five o'clock, and the shadows of the March evening were beginning to fall, when an excited rustic rushed into our room. They've gone, Mr. Holmes. They went by the last train. The lady broke away, and I've got her in a cab downstairs. Excellent, Warner, cried Holmes, springing to his feet. Watson, the gaps are closing rapidly. In the cab was a woman, half collapsed from nervous exhaustion. She bore upon her aquiline and emaciated face the traces of some recent tragedy. Her head hung listlessly upon her breast, but as she raised it and turned her dull eyes upon us, I saw that her pupils were dark dots in the centre of the broad grey iris. She was drugged with opium. I watched at the gate, same as you advised, Mr. Holmes, said our emissary, the discharged gardener. When the carriage came out, I followed it to the station. She was like one walking in her sleep, but when they tried to get her into the train, she came to life and struggled. They pushed her into the carriage. She fought her way out again. I took her part, got her into a cab, and here we are. I shan't forget the face at the carriage window as I led her away. I'd have a short life if he had his way, the black-eyed, scowling, yellow devil. We carried her upstairs, laid her on the sofa, and a couple of cups of strongest coffee soon cleared her brain from the mists of the drug. Baines had seemed summoned by Holmes and the situation rapidly explained to him. Why, sir, you've got me the very evidence I want, said the inspector warmly, shaking my friend by the hand. I was on the same scent as you from the first. What? You were after Henderson? Why, Mr. Holmes, when you were crawling in the shrubbery at High Gable, I was upon one of the trees in the plantation and saw you down below. It was just who would get his evidence first. Then why did you arrest the man? Baines chuckled. I was sure Henderson, as he calls himself, felt that he was suspected and that he would lie low and make no move as long as he thought he wasn't in any danger. I arrested the wrong man to make him believe that our eyes were off him. I knew he would be likely to clear off, then, and give us a chance at getting at Miss Burnett. Holmes lay his hand upon the inspector's shoulder. You will rise high in your profession, You have instinct and intuition, said he. Baines flushed with pleasure. I've had a plain clothes man waiting at the station all week. 
wherever the high gable folk go, he will keep them in sight. But he must have been hard to put to it when Miss Burnett broke away. However, your man picked her up, and it all ends well. We can't arrest without her evidence, that is clear, so the sooner we get a statement, the better. Every minute she gets stronger, said Holmes, glancing at the governess. But tell me, Baines, who is this man Henderson? Henderson, the inspector answered, is Don Murillo, once called the Tiger of San Pedro. The Tiger of San Pedro. The whole history of the man came back to me in a flash. He had made his name as the most lewd and bloodthirsty tyrant that had ever governed any country with a pretense to civilization. Strong, fearless, and energetic, he had sufficient virtue to enable him to impose his odious vices upon a cowering people for ten or twelve years. His name was a terror through all Central America. At the end of that time, there was a universal rising against him, but he was as cunning as he was cruel, and at the first whisper of coming trouble, he had secretly conveyed his treasures aboard a ship which was manned by devoted adherents. It was an empty palace which was stormed by the insurgents next day. The dictator, his two children, his secretary, and his wealth had all escaped them. From that moment he had vanished from the world, and his identity had been a frequent subject for comment in European press. Yes, sir, Don Murillo, the Tiger of San Pedro, said Baines. If you look it up, you will find that the San Pedro colours are green and white, same as in the note, Mr. Holmes. Henderson, he called himself, but I traced him back, Paris and Rome and Madrid to Barcelona, where his ship came in in 86. They've been looking for him all the time for their revenge, but it is only now that they have begun to find him out. They discovered him a year ago, said Miss Burnett, who had sat up and was now intently following the conversation. Once already his life has been attempted, but some evil spirit shielded him. Now, again, it is the noble, chivalrous Garcia who has fallen, while the monster goes safe. But another will come, and yet another, until some day justice will be done. That is as certain as the rise of tomorrow's sun. Her thin hands clenched, and her worn face blanched with the passion of her hatred. But how come you into this matter, Miss Burnett? asked Holmes. How can an English lady join in such a murderous affair? 
I join in it because there is no other way in the world by which justice can be gained. What does the law of England care for the rivers of bloodshed years ago in San Pedro, or for the shiploads of treasure which this man has stolen? To you they are all like crimes committed in some other planet, but we know. We have learned the truth in sorrow and in suffering. To us there is no fiend in hell like Juan Murillo, and no peace in life while his victims still cry for vengeance. No doubt, said Holmes, he was as you say. I have heard that he was atrocious, but how are you affected? I will tell you it all. This villain's policy was to murder, on one pretext or another, every man who showed such promise that he might in time come to be a dangerous rival. My husband, yes, my real name is Signora Victora Dorando, was the San Pedro minister in London. He met me and married me there. A nobler man never lived upon earth. Unhappily, Murillo heard of his excellence, recalled him on some pretext, and had him shot. With the premonition of his fate, he had refused to take me with him. His estates were confiscated, and I was left with a pittance and a broken heart. Then came the downfall of the tyrant. He escaped as you have just described, but the man whose lives he had ruined, whose nearest and dearest had suffered torture and death at his hands, would not let the matter rest. They banded themselves into a society which should never be dissolved until the work was done. It was my part after we had discovered in the transformed Henderson that the falling depot, to attach myself to his household and keep them in touch with his movements. This I was able to do by securing the position of governess in his family. He little knew that the woman who faced him at every meal was the woman whose husband he had hurried an hour's notice into eternity. I smiled on him, did my duty to his children, and bided my time. An attempt was made in Paris and failed. We zigzagged swiftly here and there over Europe to throw off the pursuers and finally returned to this house, which he had taken upon his arrival in England. But here also the ministers of justice were waiting, knowing that he would return there. Garcia, who is the son of the former highest dignitary in San Pedro, was waiting with two trusty companions of humble station. All three fired with the same reasons of revenge. He could do little during the day, for Murillo took every precaution and never went out 
save with his satellite Lucas, or Lopez, as he was known in the days of his greatness. At night, however, he slept alone, and the Avenger might find him. On a certain evening, which had been prearranged, I sent my friend final instructions, for the man was forever on the alert and continually changed his room. I was to see that the doors were open and the signals of a green or white light in a window which faced the drive was to give notice if all was safe or if the attempt had better be postponed. But everything went wrong with us. In some way I had excited the suspicion of Lopez, the secretary. He crept up behind me and sprang upon me with just as I had finished the note. He and his master dragged me to my room and held judgment upon me as a convicted traitress. Then and there they would have plunged their knives into me, could they have seen how to escape the consequences of the deed. Finally, after much debate, they concluded that my murder was too dangerous, but they determined to get rid of Garcia forever. They had gagged me, and Murillo twisted my arm round until I gave him the address. I swear that he might have twisted it off if I understood what it meant to Garcia. Lopez addressed the note which I had written, sealed it with his sleeve link, and sent it by the hand of the servant, Jose. How they murdered him, I do not know, save that it was Murillo's hand who struck him down, for Lopez had remained to guard me. I believe he must have waited among the gorse bushes through which the path winds and struck him down as he passed. At first they were of a mind to let him enter the house and to kill him as a detected burglar, but they argued that if they were mixed up in any inquiry, their own identity would at once be publicly disclosed and they would be open to further attacks. With the death of Garcia, the pursuit might cease, since such a death might frighten others from the task. All would now have been well from then, had it not been for my knowledge of what they had done. I have no doubt that there were times when my life hung in the balance. I was confined to my room, terrorized by the most horrible threats cruelly ill-used to break my spirit. See this stab on my shoulder and the bruises from end to end of my arms, and a gag was thrust into my mouth on the one occasion when I tried to call from the window. For five days this cruel imprisonment continued, with hardly enough food to hold body and soul together. This afternoon a good lunch was brought to me, but the moment after I took it I knew that I had been drugged. In a sort of dream I remember being half led, half carried to the carriage, 
in the same state I was conveyed to the train. Only then, when the wheels were almost moving, did I suddenly realize that my liberty lay in my own hands. I sprang out. They tried to drag me back, and had it not been for the help of this good man who led me to the cab, I should never have broken away. Now, thank God, I am beyond their power forever. We had all listened intently to this remarkable statement. It was Holmes who broke the silence. Our difficulties are not over, he remarked, shaking his head. Our police work ends, but our legal work begins. Exactly, said I. A plausible lawyer could make it out as an act of self-defence. There may be a hundred crimes in the background, but it is only this one that they can be tried. Come, come, said Baines cheerily. I think better of the law than that. Self-defence is one thing. To entice a man in cold blood with the object of murdering him is another. Whatever danger you may fear from him. No, no, we shall all be justified when we see the tenants of High Gable at the next Guildford Assizes. It is a matter of history, however, that a little time was still to elapse before the Tiger of San Pedro should meet his deserts. Wily and bold, he and his companion threw their pursuer off their attack by entering a lodging house in Endmont Street and leaving by the back gate into Curzon Square. From that day they were seen no more in England. Some six months afterwards, the Marquess of Montalava and Signor Rulli, his secretary, were both murdered in their rooms at the Hotel Esclura in Madrid. The crime was ascribed to nihilism, and the murders were never arrested. Inspector Baines visited us at Baker Street with a printed description of the dark face of the secretary, and of the masterful features, the magnetic black eyes, and the tufted brows of his master. We could not doubt that justice, if belated, had come at last. A chaotic case, my dear Watson, said Holmes over an evening pipe. It will not be possible for you to present it in that compacter form which is dear to your heart. It covers two continents, concerns two groups of mysterious persons, and is further complicated by the highly respectable presence of our friend, Scott Eccles, whose inclusion shows me that the deceased Garcia had a scheming mind and a well-developed instinct for self-preservation. It is remarkable only for the fact that amid a perfect jungle of possibilities, we with our worthy collaborator, the inspector, have kept 
kept our close hold on the essentials, and so been guided along the crooked and winding path. Is there any point which is not quite clear to you? The object of the cook's return. I think that the strange creature in the kitchen may account for it. The man was a primitive savage from the backwoods of San Pedro, and this was his fetish. When his companion and he fled to some prearranged retreat, already occupied, no doubt by a confederate, the companion had persuaded him to leave so compromising an article of furniture. But the man's heart was in it, and he was driven back to it the next day, when, on reconnoitering through the window, he found Policeman Walters in possession. He waited three days longer, and then his piety or his superstition drove him to try once more. Inspector Baines, who, with his usual astuteness, has minimized the incident before me, had really recognized its importance and had left a trap in which the creature walked. Any other point, Watson? The torn bird, the pail of blood, the charred bones, all the mystery of that weird kitchen. Holmes smiled as he turned up an entry in his notebook. I spent a morning in the British Museum, reading up on that and other points. Here is a quotation from Erichman Voodooism and the Religions. The true voodoo worshipper attempts nothing of importance without certain sacrifices which are intended to propriate his unclean gods. In extreme cases, these rites take the form of human sacrifices, followed by cannibalism. The more usual victims are a white cock, which is plucked in pieces alive, or a black goat, whose throat is cut and body burned. So you see, our savage friend was very orthodox in his ritual. It is grotesque, Watson, Holmes added, as he slowly fastened his notebook. But, as I have had occasion to remark, there is but one step from the grotesque to the horrible.